Hi friends, welcome to this new season of Stoic Talks. First, I would like to thank all you listeners. Even though Stoic podcast series, which started as a very small side project, passion project for me and Manish, and we only did very few episodes, the feedback which we got from all of you have been amazing. Now, all these years after we did our last episode somewhere in 2017, so many of you have asked us to resume this series as it offered a lot of practical insights into the investing world. The series became so popular that despite having a very few episodes, we were able to reach rank number two in the Apple podcast ranking, which was fascinating for us. Now, we thought of restarting many times, but we always had a lingering thought as to how in this crowded world of podcasts and interviews, can we add value on a consistent basis? And after a lot of thought, we decided to relaunch this project. This time, we are also lucky to have a wonderful organization backing this project for us. So with a lot of new ideas, some new formats which we plan to experiment with, a new co-host in form of Naresh, and hopefully a lot more practical learning for all you listeners and us too. We bring you the second season of what we now call Stoic Talks. So hope you have a great learning experience. See you on the other side. Hi, I am Puneet Khurana. Me and my very good friends Manish Dhawan and Nuresh Mirani brings you Stoic Talks Season 2. We started Stoic Talks as an initiative to bring practical and implementable investing wisdom from some of the best minds in the business without getting selective or biased on the investment style or philosophy they follow. The idea was to learn various viewpoints choose the nuggets that make sense and develop or enhance one's own investment style. Let's tune in and listen and learn with Stoic Talks. This particular episode of Stoic Talks has been recorded in collaboration with DSP Mutual Fund. With that, now let's welcome the guest for today. Hi friends, welcome to the first episode of Stoic Talks Season 2. Today, we have with us Samit Vartak. He's the CIO and founder of Sage One Investment Advisor. Now, I have been following Samit's work for many years now. I've been a regular reader of his uh, letters to investors, and he has carved out a good niche for himself in the mid-cap and the small-cap space with some really good top-of-the-line returns. So today, me and Nuresh will try to decode his investing style his philosophy. We will delve deeper into his investing process and see how he comes up with those great small cap and mid cap names and eventually how he puts them into his portfolio. With that, let's welcome Samit. So Samit, great to have you here on the podcast. Uh, what we'll be discussing today is everything about you and we'll be poking you on uh, all the things you've done over the last uh, 10 years and congratulations on your PMS completing 10 years. So a good time to have a uh, talk with you because uh, you'll have a lot more learnings to share and uh, we would love it to be a candid conversation so uh, don't be worried about uh, whatever you want to talk so we'll start off with uh, let us know something about you 
as in how did you get into the markets uh, in the first place because you've had a multiple areas of work before you got into the pms side yes uh, so you know i think my path to the markets uh, you know is is i think very different than most uh, investors you know because uh, i mean i was an engineer so i grew up in a you know in a small uh, village uh, 100 kilometers above or north of uh, mumbai right? and my father you know we are from a farming background our generations you know most of uh, our i mean i i was the first one to even graduate so none of us had any idea about what the stock market is you know so i did my engineering uh, fortunately uh, i was able to come to bombay uh, that was in uh, you know in 1986 or so for uh, my uh, or 1987 uh, after my 10th uh, standard and uh, i did my college and then engineering uh, from from mumbai and 1994 uh, i think around that i graduated you know and so i had no idea that you know i thought uh, you know my father used to tell me uh, about uh, you know engineers and maybe some collector doctors you know so i had few uh, careers in my mind you know what i wanted to do and uh, i had taken civil engineering so i thought okay you know it's it looks great because you know i can build buildings you know some bridges all of that and uh, that was based on you know so i was you know in a village it was a very simple life uh, you know uh, from morning to evening okay other than that school part which we used to attend it was mostly just uh, play and fun you know <clears throat> and our was a beach town so we used to go to the beach we used to climb trees and play all sorts of uh, you know games because everyone had just time so that was uh, the fun part and then when i came to bombay i mean i took a while to adjust because you know i couldn't speak english you know i was uh, sort of uh, horrified when i had to converse with anyone you know so uh, initial part was very difficult and i thought you know everyone is so smart around me that you know how do i uh, even survive in this uh, kind of competition you know because everyone were doing classes they were going for you know agarwal classes and uh, yeah so i mean took me a while i mean imagine that i was going for an engineering and then uh, until i completed my 11th i had never even heard of uh, something called an iit and then i saw you know people were uh, uh, preparing for iit and uh, for years and uh, so that's how it was you know it was completely just a random uh, you know career with no real thought uh, you know something which i thought okay you know i am good at math so let me go into you know engineering is what the only thing and then because i you know civil engineering made sense so jalo i'll get into that you know so that's how i got into after that you know from campus i got job into mahindra and mahindra and i did the job for 2 3 years you know and then uh, again i was wasn't sure i wasn't liking that you know engineering part that much right so uh, one of the days my one of the classmates you know he was uh, appearing for gmat and he was applying for few college, uh, mba uh, colleges in uh, us so and that time it used to be a very physical process of applying you know you have to write a letter and then the university will send you a form and then you have to fill up the forms so it was like a long process it used to take months you know to even uh, get those forms <clears throat> and he applied to the top colleges and he had couple of forms left you know which were reasonably ranked mba schools you know like 15 20th around that uh, rank and 
he came to my you know room hostel and he said uh, you know why don't you also think about uh, applying i have a couple of extra forms and that's how you know i said oh it makes sense because i didn't know what i was going to do anyways and uh, what's the harm in at least you know applying you know the, so then i quickly prepared for my gmat i gave my gmat within a month and then uh, applied to, to these two colleges one was that washington university in st louis and another one was ohio state university and fortunately both of the places gave me admission and one of the university gave me the uh, scholarship <laughs> to come so that's how i went to uh, to the us in 1997 just pure uh, pure uh, luck and uh, ironically my friend never ended up going to the us who was like preparing for uh, months or years and that's how i went to the us and then what happened was in 1997 that was that dot com you know boom like things were uh, just uh, hyped up and then uh, a lot of my classmates were basically uh, doing investments in ipos you know on the side and uh, that's how i sort of got hooked up there were a couple of you know iits in in our uh, college and they were really passionate about uh, in wall street and you know they used to just talk about all kinds of traders trading wall street and because i was hanging around with them i got uh, really fascinated with that and uh, i said so at least let me take uh, classes you know of uh, all investment related so mba i almost whatever courses i could take on investment i took you know and then uh, when i uh, completed my mba in 1999 i wasn't sure what i wanted to do anyways 99 you know the sort of the wave was sort of turning around you know things were coming down and from sort of a taken second uh, tier you know 15 16th rank school it wasn't that easy to get into you know top tier the wall street firm so i took the first job which was with pwc consulting because of my engineering i took that job and you know fortunately for me that gave me an opportunity to work with a lot of managements because you know my ro- role was to basically you know uh, with uh, you know work with the mostly manufacturing uh, managements and look at their activities you know what were the sort of redundancies inefficiencies in the operations and recommend which are the you know best ways to cut cost and you know reduce those inefficiencies and improve profitability and then through that you know thinking about growth and i worked with uh, so many these different managements in different industries from dairy farm to auto ancillaries to auto companies to even logistical companies because of that you know e-commerce which was developing in that so that was a really good experience because i could see from inside you know how managements thought how companies work you know at the ground level and then in the meantime i started investing in 1999 in the market and 99 was like the worst time probably to come into the market because you know everything was just downhill and uh, i got my you know signing bonus so i said okay now you know i should uh, start so i started and because the markets were uh, coming down then you know of course you would you know lose money and with the kind of knowledge that i gained in mba it was uh, completely inadequate so you know i started uh, investing lost initially phase you know was probably pure luck that you know i did well but then uh, you know things started uh, just going downhill and with losses then you try to recover that with you know more and us gives you so much margin you know money <laughs> margin that you can leverage many many times so and that's uh, sort of a trap you know that it's it's just a trap to 
you know destroy your uh, money much faster so that's what happened and then uh, that had a big big impact on me because you know that whatever money i lost was i mean that was uh, massive money for you know uh, uh, for my family back home and uh, i stopped investing uh, you know for couple of years after that i enrolled myself for the cfa program i did the cfa and then started reading a lot about you know different all kinds of uh, investing styles you know some from warren buffett to technicals to you know corn based and uh, you know all kinds of uh, and i thought uh, you know because i had no idea what is uh, you know right thing and uh, as a uh, sort of initial investor i think it's uh, it's great to try different styles and uh, then you know i sort of restarted uh, with little more knowledge and with the cfa i restarted investing in 2003 2004 you know and then uh, then i decided okay this is what i really want to do full time and then my next step was that let me you know get to more towards finance so then i moved to the silicon valley with deloitte financial advisory and uh, and that was a uh, you know basically doing valuations for many companies out there so you know that was little more relevant but I, actually whatever knowledge i gained was really useful you know because investments are all, all about understanding businesses and understanding valuation so and then i had, uh, when i went to the us there itself i had said that you know i with some experience i'll come back to india so in 2006 you know we came back to india and uh, since then then mostly you know got completely Uh, i mean i came in as an associate director with anstand young uh, valuation practice in mumbai you know and uh, then uh, at the first opportunity i jumped into private equity because at that time again there was a boom time and private equity was you know doing great so i joined i mean i took probably 70% pay cut because that was my first real investment related job so i took that you know uh, pay cut and joined and then and, and that was the real start of a full time uh, sort of investment until then it was just you know as a hobby on the part uh, time part time side but then you know when that 2008 sort of crash started i was much well you know prepared for that you know compared to the first crash when i was uh, wiped out right so that's when you know slowly i had realized that it's all about businesses and i spent from that 2006 to 2012 you know meeting probably 400 companies during that time you know and that was my passion you know meeting companies understanding the businesses putting myself in their shoes in terms of how do you strategically you know plan your growth forward and try to understand as much as possible my reading also you know tilted more towards like whatever helped me understand businesses business models and why some companies doing this versus the comp- competition doing that so for me uh, you know that became of much more uh, interest and then 2012 is when i started sage one and you know the journey started but that's a uh, little bit longer but that was how i sort of got into investments no samit thank thanks a lot for that you know uh, i i think the initial part of the years of an individual decide what kind of investor is going to be and uh, your that's that's where the context which you have provided is ex- actually very important for the next few questions which are going to be on the investment side of things but just to get the chronology a bit correct so you when you started uh, investment the first time that was in 1999 you did levered investing is that is uh, did that i get that correct 
initially I started with just a pure investment and you know the first few months were great because the markets were just booming you know but after uh, sort of the peak in 2000 when it started going down that's when you know once you start losing money you try to you know sort of recover because a stock you know i used to invest in companies like siebel or i2 and you know a lot of those uh, siena and uh, you know and jupiter and those you know corrected like 30 40% in a matter of few months you know they were and then you realize oh it's so cheap you know so you want to make up the money <laughs> very quickly and then you lever up and you know you want to uh, buy more and that's where that's where i started levering or use the margin you know the margin that they that the exchanges you know brokerages give you there okay and one more thing which you said uh, which i captured was that in 2008 you said you were much better prepared uh, for the investment world than you were in 1999 can you can you go a bit more into detail about what you mean by that when you say you were more prepared are you talking more from capital perspective or were you waiting for the markets to do something? What do you mean by preparation in that sense of the world? See, I think few things I learned was that, you know, it's all about, uh, uh, so there are a few mistakes that, you know, like a starting investor makes, right? So one is, uh, of course, you believe too much in, you know, what other people are saying. So if, and uh, you know, if there is a company and, uh, you know, there are say 20 analysts who are covering that company and all 20 are saying buy, you tend to believe that, you know, that's the best buy that I'm going to do, right? So that was like my first uh, learning is that if everyone is saying buy and if everyone is already, you know, invested, that means generally it's not a, a great buy. So that was a mistake I used to make, you know, I used to see which companies had the most buys and I used to make that. Secondly, you know, as the markets start falling, your instinct is to, you know, start buying because you think it's available 30%, 40% cheap. So that falling knife is something which I realized, you know, uh, just because a price has fallen by 30-40% doesn't mean it's a, a cheap uh, value. Uh, you, after all, have to evaluate the business, you know, much uh, better. So in 2008, when, you know, the crisis started at, in January 2008, and then, you know, Bank of America, and then, you know, Merrill Lynch and Lehman Brothers, all of that started. And at that time, I thought that this is not something which is going to end very quickly. So even if the market, you know, prices were down 20, 30, 40 percent, uh, I never jumped into buy. You know, I held on to whatever, uh, you know, cash uh, I had. And of course, uh, fortune also, sort of luck was also a factor because when I came to India, you know, I uh, set a little bit into cash because I wasn't aware of a lot of companies in India. So because I never tracked the Indian market well. So I took my time to deploy and when things started, uh, you know, going down, fortunately I had 30-40% cash and uh, like previously I didn't, you know, start catching the falling knives. So that was the big difference. And then I started understanding the businesses and understanding the environment, how the, you know, financial crisis will have impact on each of the companies, which are the companies who will probably be able to survive. So I was much more rational rather than, you know, listening to others to take my uh, decisions. Interesting. So 2008, you did not liver up. Uh, was that, uh, how did you end up in 2012 into from, you've been from business to valuations to private equity. How did you get into Sage one? And you can tell us the start and how did this happen? Yeah. See, I mean, my uh, passion was always to do something on my own. 
you know because uh, i had done the you know job for many years and uh, with job you are after all you are not free to do what you want to do you know you are uh, guided by the company processes maybe the company philosophy style all of that and uh, since i had never worked on the sell side or buy side before you know i had like uh, no baggage of any style i said you know whatever i you know it was all experiments on my own money and on me you know and over the years i had sort of uh, uh, you know fine tuned what really works for me with you know reducing volatility with not too many big uh, drawdowns and by betting on company so i never like you know ever tried to benchmark my myself against indexes you know because an independent investor i thought for me i you know as a small investor i have to compound my money you know it's not just beating the benchmark but i have to compound my so i always targeted every 3 to 4 years i need to sort of double my uh, wealth you know so that was something that i targeted for myself and then i started thinking you know is it something that i can replicate for the clients and fortunately during that time from 2000 and especially after 2009 i started focusing completely on the listed market you know and then because i was on the private equity side i used to meet a lot of uh, you know promoters and then couple of them uh, we used to discuss investments and then i started informally advising them you know about what kind of stocks to uh, invest in and a uh, couple of stocks at that time i remember we used to i used to be very very you know gangho about uh, bajaj finance and kaveri seed you know those were sort of my top you know conviction ideas at that time so i used to tell them you know like this is what is happening in the company you know need to invest and uh, so they invested you know whatever tiny money they that they invested and that 2009 to 2012 was a great period you know uh, so 9 to 11 was anyways great period but 12 was a bad period for but because i was invested in these companies i was invested in bajaj finance kaveri seed pi industries you know those kind of companies they kept on doing, doing pretty well and because of that experience i got much more confidence that even in a not so good cycle you know if i pick the right companies i can you know do pretty well and by that time i had also got gotten enough comfort that you know because of corporate governance issues in india and then private equity gave me the opportunity to sort of uh, you know do due diligence on companies so i got much in depth uh, knowledge about you know what managements do how do they sort of fudge the you know pnl balance sheet i worked with auditors also because they also were part of the due diligence so that gave me a first hand experience of you know what are the things which can you know go or which can be sort of tweaked you know and uh, 2012 again you know for me i had no other than those couple of promoters who joined me with like 1 crore each i didn't have my own capital neither did i have a network of uh, sort of clients but i thought this is what i want to do you know this is my passion uh, you know my style i had developed uh, on my own and i thought it it worked pretty well and uh, i never tried to even get a job on the on the listed uh, side anywhere in the you know so i said even if i don't make money i had you know this is my passion and i'm right away you know going to jump into it samit before we go to the investment side of things and go more detail into your philosophy of investments uh i wanted to a bit dwell on couple of decisions which you have mentioned in your life even though it was passing mentioned but they are very difficult decisions right so the first decision which seems to be the game changer for you is your decision to move from uh you know from from being the associate director with eny 
to the private equity by taking a 70% cut. Uh, not an easy decision. I've been there. I know it's not an easy decision by any stretch of imagination. Uh, and you know, many people, they, they get inspired from these kind of stories, but they don't get the underlying environment or ecosystem that helped you take that decision. I want to go a bit more into that uh, because I have heard stories where people want to take those decisions. And when they tell me their circumstances, I tell them, boss, I would not have taken that decision if I were you, right? So, so, so ecosystem play a good role in these kind of, um, uh, what were your circumstances at a personal level when you made that shift? Uh, were you married? Uh, you know, what, did you have any you know, family members dependent on you? Just, just give us a context of that decision, please. Sure, sure. No, no, you are right. I think it's one of the most difficult decisions, especially when you have a monthly check coming in, you know, uh, sort of saying no to, to that. Um, so I was married with two kids, you know, at that, at that time, and I was the only one uh, working. So the family was completely dependent on that. But even with that sort of 30, uh, 70% uh, uh, cut in pay, uh, the money that I was making was good enough for me to at least survive, you know, so uh, you know, when we came in, we first thing we did, did was we bought a house. We had to take maybe like 50% kind of a loan on that house. But with the money, you know, it was enough to pay uh, that and, you know, survive reasonably well with a, a decent lifestyle. So that was something which uh, definitely helped, you know. But after so, sort of having worked for, you know, almost uh, 13 or 14 years by then, you know, the salary that was, that was, uh, that I was making was uh, very, very uh, small compared to my kind of experience with, you know, coming from US, having worked with, you know, big four and uh, most uh, uh, comparable uh, sort of experienced, uh, you know, professionals were making, you know, 3x the money that I was, I was making, but still it was, you know, enough, our requirements were you know, not, not much. We just bought a two bedroom, uh, you know, a flat uh, in Prabhadevi and that two very old flat, we just re renovated that. So it was also a very small investment that, that we did. So, you know, because of my sort of, you know, farming sort of background and the background through which I came in, my requirements were very, very uh, small. And so I was able to take that decision much more comfortably. So two quick decisions. So you went from US to India, then in India went to a 70% cut. Didn't people tell you, are you mad? No. And, you know, fortunately my family was always supportive, mainly my wife. So, you know, she knew how passionate I was about this, you know, and this is what I wanted to do in my life. So I thought if my passion is clear and, you know, I, if, uh, of course you yourself have to believe that you are good at it and you will be able to sort of deliver on this. It's just a matter of time before you, you know, make up uh, the money. So, I mean, it's always uh, easy to say that, you know, follow your passion and the money will follow. But, you know, it takes, for me to make real money was, uh, so I took this jump in 2007, right? And I did not make much money until probably 2018-19. Until that I was just, you know, I started stage one, but until that point, you know, it, there's a lot of investment that you need to make uh, in uh, and then you at your level, you don't make much of, uh, you know, salary. So it took me a good 12 years to sort of really start, uh, you know, making money and whatever money I was making only on the investment side, but my starting cap starting capital was very small, you know, after coming back to India, having to put up the equity and buying into the house. 
you know and uh, uh, so uh, you know you don't really make you know even if you make say 10x money on your capital it's not going to be you know that big when you're starting capital itself is uh, is so you need to first also earn money right and that earning money started way late you know in 2018 sort of 18 19 kind of uh, uh, period so yes uh, if you have the passion passion follow your passion and the money will follow but remember it may follow after you know 10 12 years <laughs> yeah actually that brings me to the second part of the question also in terms of the game changing decisions uh going back it sounds very obvious that okay 2012 starting sage one uh was a good decision right if you if you start your measurement from today but as you rightly said at that point in time uh, first of all how was it possible for you because 2012 you said you had no capital uh your clients were only two clients as you rightly said right two crores starting capital how was it even possible for you to start because the initial net worth requirements are there to start a pms how did you go around you know making that decision or coming up with a pms and not going the normal route of let's say an advisory or a brokerage or something like that right 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 no initially i started with advisory see in 2012 there was actually no advisory license you know you could just do advisory you know advisory license started in uh, i think they came out with the regulation in january 2013 and with some time for you to register right so i said i can work from home i don't really have much of fixed cost you know i was just alone i didn't have a team or anything anyone so i said i will do what exactly or i will do for myself you know so what i did was for my clients i did just advise them but i made them open an account with you know uh, one of the brokers where even my account was right and then i took the poa to you know do uh, the the execution on their uh, their basis and then with my account you know even their execution used to happen you know so that's how i started with really minimal uh, cost at my end and then once i got enough you know bigger enough then i went for the pms and you know went through the license. but initially when i started i said for me it's more important that i keep my cost as low as possible because i didn't have the you know sort of the uh, net worth required for for uh, you know the the pms kind of a license so it took me a while to you know even uh, get that okay and and just to uh, get the chronology in place when is it that you started your pms or you took the pms license uh, in the more official capacity yeah so i took the pms license in 2016 that's when i uh, took the pms to 2016 yes yes so until then i took the so when the advisory license came i you know took the investment advisory license at that time and there were also issues with pms license then you know when we were speaking with lawyers at that time what used to happen was in the pms you don't get a contract note you know so uh, because it's a pooled account so the buying and selling happens at the the pms level and not at a client level so there were taxation issues you know so when modi government came in uh, arun jetli you know clarified in the budget you know regarding this that you can you know it will be up to the investor to classify as an investor or for a trade so you can declare and then you stick with it the officer cannot challenge you and when that clarity came in that's when i said okay it makes sense to uh, apply for the pms license until then because pms had a lot of issues with you know investment uh, uh, the 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 it guys coming after you and that's where you know we uh, applied in 2016 
Hi friends, I hope you are enjoying this episode so far. Uh, I just want to take a minute to thank the sponsor for this episode. Now, Stoic Talks was built on a premise of actionable insights and detailed cautioning without constraints is the only way to get that. And for that, you need independence. Now, when you're looking for somebody to partner with, you're not looking for somebody just who share your ethos, but who also will promote this independence of you know, asking fearless questions without any hesitations. So when we were looking for someone like that, the obvious choice for us was DSP Mutual Fund. As I have known their team, I have worked with their team for a long period of time. Now, if you're an investor, there's a high chance that you are already familiar with at least some, if not all, of the excellent research that they put in public domain. There are reports like Netra on the macro parameters. Then there is a report called the transcript, which gives important snippet from the Concord transcripts and discusses them. Then the annual report Nectar, uh, the Navigator, and many such excellent reports, which I enjoy reading and is enjoyed by many practitioners in the investing community. So we are extremely happy to be working with such a team. They completely agree with our vision for Stoic Talks, and I wholeheartedly want to thank them for supporting this episode. If you aren't already, I would highly recommend you to follow them on Twitter with their Twitter ID as at the rate DSPMF. And you can also follow them on their YouTube channel where they put a lot of insightful videos regularly. Thanks and enjoy listening to this show. Uh, you, you mentioned about styles when it comes to listed markets, which is not there in private equity. Let's talk about styles, right? Now, uh, you... And in many of your interviews, you have talked about the business quality and, and we'll come to the four pillars on which you have named your company also, Sage. Uh, but you also mentioned in the, in the uh, initial questions that you experimented with a lot of things, right? You experimented with Quant, Warren Buffett, uh, uh, technicals, and many things. Let Just take us through the journey before you reached your current situation or even in 2012 when you started Sage, I'm guessing that when you started Sage, you had a much more clarity on your style, but let us take you, uh, let us, you know, let you take us through the journey of that, reaching that style. How did you reach that style? What did you experiment? What did you lose? What did you learn? And so on and so forth. Right. So see, after 2001 is when my real sort of education started. You know, and then I started reading a lot of uh, books, Warren Buffett, which spoke about fundamentals and all of that, which made sense, you know, but that also uh, required you that you spend a lot of time, you know, really go going in depth into companies, you know, and uh, doing that as an as a sole investor with a full time job in the US, you know, which needs you to work, you know, 12 to 16 hours a day, that wasn't practical enough for me. You know, so during that time, I also came across uh, this Canslim uh, style. You know, I think Bill O'Neill. You know, he uh, there is a newspaper, you know, Investor Investors Business Daily. You know, which does a lot of fundamental ranking for you. So fundamental momentum, uh, even within an industry, it does the ranking for you, and it does give you a score. You know, so with that, at least I got some short list of companies to look deeper into. It weren't just in the US, but you know, so that made a lot of sense to me that having a combination of uh, technical 
as well as uh, you know fundamental and then momentum wise where earnings it's not just the price momentum but also the earnings momentum and that to relative momentum against the uh, against the industry right so at least that gave me a starting point to look into because otherwise you know there are thousands of companies where do you really look look into so I started focusing on like the top 25 30 companies in within which i looked at companies which made sense to me you know which uh, the industries i liked and then where there was you know growth uh, so the focus was completely on fundamental momentum in uh, earnings growth and because maybe it's pure luck that the time where was really good during that time 2003 to 2007 everything was doing doing well but because i did that i got the confidence okay this works you know so and uh, then again you know so i continued doing that without really i mean i couldn't visit the company or talk to the management just on a very passive level just looked at you know financial statements and how the earnings were were coming through and it worked pretty well for me and so when i came back to india that kind of data wasn't available for the indian market and that's what i said you know i wasn't sure what to invest in in india you know and hence i was whatever money i had had i at least kept it in uh, some in cash right and 2008 i had invested in a house in andheri you know that we sold so i got you know few lakhs of uh, profits that was in early 2008 and that like if i was like uh, my previous self in 1990 i would have like right away jumped into catching all these falling knives around me but fortunately i kept uh, you know uh, that cash uh, for a long period of uh, period of time because i wanted to get comfortable in terms of understanding these businesses but the bottom line for me was always earnings momentum where are you know relative, where is the relative outperformance and all of that you know and uh, that private equity gave me that opportunity at least you know to go around and meet companies and uh, yeah i mean at least i had a framework of looking at uh, looking at the uh, companies and which took its own time and after 2008 9 anyway the market had fallen so much that i mean i knew companies like you know gujarat floro and they were available at one times uh, ebitda you know kind of enterprise value there so many companies available at two times three times uh, you know ev by ebitda kind of uh, levels so then uh, if you have the money and you invest in any of those companies you know you will do pretty much fine right so again that was also a lot of luck involved that you know it uh, because of my initial uh, phase of experience i sat on cash and by the time markets had collapsed i had enough cash uh, uh, to invest and that did you know pretty pretty uh, well and then as i ga- got more and more exposure to sort of meeting companies and then you know actually evaluating uh, uh, these companies then uh, ended up at least with the right framework picking the right set of uh, companies all of these companies you know whether it's the bajaj finance or uh, you know bajaj finance or uh, kaveri and pi they were really really cheap you know even in 2011 2012 they never really got uh, sort of re-rated but the earnings momentum was so strong that uh, even if you don't get re-rating which just because of the earnings momentum you know actually you could make a lot of a uh, lot of money so the time period in which sort of i really experienced you know indian corporate 
was also very good uh, good for me in terms of starting your investments and that worked out pretty well so in terms of say we are we are talking about kaveri seeds i think you have an interesting story to say also and now that you don't own the stock you can talk about the company much more easily how you got in and i think uh, you almost wrote a note also on the exit so and there was a lot of scuttlebutt uh, involved in terms of actually accepting the numbers i suppose right right so see i mean kaveri seed and uh, you know at that time that was the initial phase so you're always always excited to and being a farmer i also connected well with you know that company so uh not just me but a lot of other investors where uh you know like manish also used to go even i think uh, girish gulati you know the delhi investor he also was doing scuttlebutt on kaveri so you know we could all, always connect together to share what everyone was uh, you know finding so used to during just pre uh, monsoon that was the peak time uh, you know for looking at which seeds were selling the most and there were two big markets one was andhra pradesh and one was maharashtra So at least if you could go to that cotton belt and then talk to the farmers and also talk to the uh, the retailer who was selling the cotton packets, cotton seed packets, you could see you know which company was selling the most. There were two big ones, you know, Nozivudu was Nozivudu was the biggest one, which had almost you know 20% market and Kaveri only had 5% market. And based on our scattered, we realized that there was not much of a difference between. sort of nuzivudu quality of seeds and uh, kaveri actually kaveri you the farmers used to give feedback that it's you know their couple of uh, those seeds were really good and hence we thought that there is no reason why kaveri should not sort of reach you know that 15 20% kind of a market share so there itself just because of market share gain they should probably at least triple from from here top line and uh, hence we took uh, that call you know but after all see as a as a long term quality investor you one has to realize that after all kaveri is a regulated you know can always be regulated because whenever it comes to farming and you know pricing and government things can change in a matter of uh, you know a day you know and that's what actually happened that uh, you know the, the the seeds were under such a short supply that many a times it used to sell in black market so the price of the packet officially was like 900 rupees a packet but there were times when it was selling at 1200 1600 rupees in the black market unofficially so i think because of that maharashtra government came in and then they set up a peak sort of a slab that you can't sell this above 800 rupees and then you know the government uh, is going to control the the pricing and uh, with that you realize that the business model is completely failed you know and hence as soon as the business model fails you got to realize that your hypothesis now you know has completely changed you know you got to change with the changes in circumstances so fortunately for me uh, you know i completely exited out of uh, uh, kaveri seed and at that time i was man- managing money uh, you know in sage one so for uh, client i completely exited and then the group with which i was you know connected you know uh, they said that you know that's okay it's a minor change and uh, really uh, you know we are completely fine holding on because the p multiple was still low for this company you know it was always like 13 14 p multiple so many of those investors you know kept on holding it and i fortunately got out and uh, i think the price then was 800 and then slowly it came down to like 400 and even today the price is you know after probably 8 years it's still uh, at 5 600 
and in kaveri i remember people had a issue in terms of no tax because of being agriculture income so i think you can tell us more about uh, how did you accept that ki this is uh, all the numbers are true right no i mean that's a see i think one of the checks that we did at that time was that uh, monsanto you know the technology was from monsanto you know so they had to pay royalty to monsanto right so question is if they are selling number of packets uh, equivalent amount of royalty has to go to monsanto and fortunately we had some connections in monsanto where we could cross check that there was that much royalty paid you know uh, and uh, that gave us that comfort that okay the sales are real you know and uh, speaking to farmers we got a first hand report on the quality of seed and that was good enough you know that at least the sales are not fake you know they are not just on paper because that is very easy when you are not paying tax you know who is going to question right it's very easy to fake uh, sales but with uh, that monsanto in between we got that comfort and you know we are fine investing so samit let's you know now let's give a structure to your investments and how do you in, you know how do you go about selection allocation and all you know key components of investment style uh from what i figured out about reading from you know reading your uh, memos and from your website and many communication which you have done in various media houses your selection is reflected in the name which you have right so when you say sage you're talking about sustainable accountable growth oriented efficient businesses so this pretty much zeros down what kind of companies you're looking at uh, is that a fair assessment or you do deviate from it you know sometimes you start with a name but then investment philosophy evolve over a period of time okay that's completely fair we look for definitely things which are you know sustainable structural in uh, 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 nature and growth is definitely you know our primary focus valuation is something that is important but that's never a starting point so that's uh, completely what we you know look for and we stuck with stick with so then why let's not you know let's let's expand it a bit uh, when you say sustainable what exactly are you evaluating what all things you're looking at in the business when you're looking at sustainable uh, sustainability similarly when it comes to accountability what all parameters which helps you evaluate this so let's start one on one uh, you know one by one uh, can you take us through what do you mean by sustainable and what exactly are you looking for yeah so sustainable so for example you know we don't invest in uh, commodity companies right commodity meaning that companies uh, which may be selling commodity products but the business model is not commoditized right so i am invested in apl apollo which you may call that it sells commodity but the business model is not commodity because it has the pricing power or you know pass through power that if even if the steel prices at 30 or 60 you know generally they end up making the ebitda per ton so that ebitda per ton is sustainable you know so then we are fine with that whereas if you look at say tata steel you know their cost structure is almost fixed you know it doesn't change with the change in you know steel prices right and the selling price has nothing to do with the cost structure because the selling price is driven by the global factors right tata steel cannot set up a price for and hence their profitability is not sustainable at all it can be usually profitable it can go into losses and so that is that's a commodity kind of a business so we stay away from such businesses right so when we exited kaveri seed i mean that was a big issue that now the margins are not sustainable because the cost structure is not something which is in the control of kaveri 
but the selling price is set by the government right so now the margins are not sustainable because who knows whether the government will drop that price from 800 rupees a packet to 700 right so the company should have that freedom so that their margins and profitability is sustainable and that is what we look for in uh, in businesses uh, does that also take out certain industries or companies that goes through uh, you know certain tailwinds which do last let's say one cycle or you know four or five years kind of cycles because not all businesses are structural from you know f i mean throughout the journey of 20 years some they go through periods of sustainability and then they go through struggles and then you know the cycle turns etc so do, does that sustainability angle take out those four five year cycles also or do you evaluate them in a different way no see i mean see as a investor you can't have a 10 year kind of a view right so i think the, there is a uh, different uh, sort of eva uh, period uh, in terms of two aspects of investment one is you have to evaluate in terms of growth what is your growth horizon right so as i said you know we look for companies where the earnings will double in three to four years you know because if you're looking for portfolio double in three to four years earnings has to you know double in three to four years right so whether the sustainability is pretty much guaranteed or you know sustainable uh, during that time the EBITDA margins the profitability is what we look for but when you are evaluating risk you know risk has to be evaluated from a much longer term perspective because that disruption or you know risk can come in at any point in time you cannot time it so with that uh, sort of growth of three to four years you got to see what is the worst case scenario possible in terms of risk and whether that risk can come in so if disruption is one of the risks say in combustion engine you know at that time if you think that the risk can come in the next three years or four years even if you think that the margins are sustainable you stay away from uh, such companies Right, so generally you look for your investment horizon and it's a sort of a you know rolling ball you at every point in time you keep on evaluating what in the next three to four years you know what is the first of all the sustainability of profitability sustainability of growth and uh, then what is the possibility of some that big risk you know hitting you uh, and uh, sort of disrupting that uh, that business so uh, sustainability can at least in terms of margins and growth need to be there for your investment horizon for me it's not 10 years it's you know generally two three four years that is the investment horizon and you keep on moving that uh, you know forward as you go along and whenever you think okay now the possibility of the risk is very you know it's going to happen in your investment horizon you get out of that uh, uh, business let me you know pick up few things that you said in that uh, in that uh, explanation uh, you said you're looking for three to four years doubling of earnings in your businesses which you're investing into because that's your ultimate investment goal also for the for the investments you're making. Um, uh, I'm guessing re-rating is an optionality you are counting on, but that's not the underlying principle of your uh, investment. Uh, can you then, you know, give your point about the valuation? It's very clear that you 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 are not focusing way too much on valuation but more on the growth growth part of the business uh, where do you draw the line can you give your views on the valuation front also sure sure see at least in my experience right uh, whenever uh, if i look at all the multi-baggers that i've invested in 
you know, right from say Kaveri, uh, Bajaj Finance, Arti Industries, PI Industries, Lao Pala, you know, uh, like APL Apollo, Deepak Nitrite, you know, PKT, all those. The starting point was very cheap, right? So, uh, unfortunately, the starting point and the P multiple is not always in your hand as a fund manager, because as a fund manager, uh, you get money every day, right? So the only sustainable way of generating that, you know, if I double in four years, it's 18% return. If I double in three years, it's 26% return. So 18 to 26% range of returns is only possible if the earnings growth is at least that much. The valuation re-rating is a lot of luck uh, involved based on your starting, starting uh, uh, point, right? But my experience has been, if you want a real multipagger, you know, which is going to go up like, 5x, 10x in the next three or four years, it will not happen if the valuation is not really, really cheap. You know, so that is going to happen. It may not happen. You will not find such companies every time. You will have only maybe in a 10-year phase, you will have two or three such times when you are able to find those companies at such valuation. You know, so one time was say in 2012-13. You know, the next phase came in probably in 2018-19 or during COVID times. So in the last 10 years, I would say there were only two real uh, such phases where you could find such uh, valuation multiples. Otherwise, 2014 to 2000 or mid-2018 were all high valuation. Those starting points will very rarely deliver you these huge multibaggers. You know, similar is the time today. You know, with such valuations uh, today, Okay, you can make consistent returns that 18-26% is possible. But if you are looking for large uh, multibaggers, it will only happen through valuation uh, re-rating. I mean, imagine that, you know, in uh, Bajaj Finance, the starting, fee multi uh, starting price to book was uh, one to one and a half times, right? And that over the next five, six years went up to nine times. You know, so there was huge uh, re-rating. Uh, PI Industries, the starting multiple was 15 times. Today it trades at you know 45 to 60 times. So it's so generally I've seen that in a huge multibagger, you know, multibagger which is about 10x in a four five year uh, kind of a period, the two three two to three x returns is only because of the p multiple re-rating, re and the remaining two to three times multiple will be because of the earnings growing at that uh, that kind of a rate, right? So. Uh, but as a fund manager, you don't have, you know, that kind of flexibility of just keeping on waiting uh, for such times. Let me invert that again. So as you rightly said, as a fund manager, you don't have the choice of, you know, when the capital is coming to you. Uh, I understand this side of the thing that, okay, valuation might not be in your favor all the times for a re-rating to play and hence the focus on the growth aspect of it. But then there is the reverse side that when there are valuations which are completely anti you know, return possibility, whether there's a derating possibility may much higher, forget about re-rating. So how do you deal with those kind of phases? Because growth is something which is not something you can compensate for in saying, okay, derating ho gaya, I will, you know, have growth supporting me. So how do you deal with that phase of market? Yeah, yeah. As you go along and you experience, I mean, that's a real threat. You know, you may not think because see, whatever you may sort of propagate that, you know, I have a 10 year horizon. Investor may also think that I'm a very long-term investor. But what happens is that when there is a derating, it is so sharp. 
like uh, you know whether you look at 2008-9 period or even 2013 period or covid times the p multiple dropped by almost you know 40-50 percent right so uh, normal 25 multiple became of 15 multiple right and now going back from 15 to 25 is almost 60-70 percent return right so unless your earnings growth is 60-70 percent during that phase you will end up losing money. So even we have had period, say in 2017 peak, our portfolio's P multiple was at 30 to 33 times. And at the bottom of March 2020, uh, during COVID times, the P multiple was at 15 times. So it was almost half of what? And during that time, even if my earnings doubled in that two, two and a half years, my portfolio returns will be zero. Right, so there will be long, like when you look at last 10 years, uh, there were periods of almost three and a half years when we made no money, right? So, I mean, we had taken a conscious call in 2017 that we will not accept further money. So, for a, for a year, we had, you know, stopped taking any uh, any money. Even last year, in the small cap fund, we said we will not take any money. I mean, that's the only thing you can, uh, you can do. And you warn your investor that this is the uh, situation, right? See, what happens is that investors also have asset allocation, many of the, especially the ones that come to us, you know, these are large families, large families, you know, they give us two, three, four, five percent of their net worth. You know, it's not their entire wealth. Most of the investors do not give us the entire wealth. Mostly it's in single digits, right? And it's a part of their asset allocation. So in terms of valuation, they need to play around with the asset allocation, you know, how much to invest in, you know, alternative assets, fixed income, equity. And within equity also, they may think, you know, where to sort of concentrate, where which fund managers take it out and which fund managers to put in. Right? So those kind of things are done by them. So at our end, we can say that, okay, this is not the right time to come in. Don't give us any more money. Or if there are new investors who are coming in for the first time, we'll just not take them. You know, so I haven't really find, found a solution beyond that. You know, because see, as a fund manager, I may think valuation is high, but what if it continues for the next three years or four years, right? Uh, you will never know. That's just a highly probable event that the returns from here on are going to be very very difficult but not necessarily is this something which is going to play out right so even i need to keep that possibility as uh, you know as as an as an outcome right and accordingly uh, i can't just go like on my limb and say okay this is the time just get out of everything because i never know like what if after 2017 india got into a really boom phase for the next 10 years then, uh, you know, I would have fallen on my face. Going into that part, because we've seen all your memos and I've been uh, reading for a long time. Is that the quantitative part which you put in, wherein you do a lot of market analysis of all the stocks, the earnings of all the stocks? I've seen you compare the top 400 companies, the bottom 400 companies, earnings growth. This is what helps you see, because uh, you launched, you've done superbly well in your small cap. But your timing was just present in terms of the time when you came out in uh, because you launched in 2019 and not in 2018 right and i think there was a memo in the start of uh, 2018 also and your take on long-term capital gains affecting the valuations which you did so could you tell us more about how this whole quantitative side of it helps you decide not just investments but this sort of asset allocation call or taking a call because you were buying into small caps, but you launched a small cap fund only in 2019. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, see, 
what happened was as you become big you know liquidity is such a big issue that you end up migrating more and more towards sort of mid caps and large caps and then you have such a large universe i mean it's like 80% of your companies are in that you know bottom sort of 10% of the valuation right that small cap which is almost impractical for fund, most fund managers who are managing anything above say 500 crores so there is that you know huge universe which is so inefficient you know and as uh, a fund which had grown to you know 7 800 crores we had to let go of sort of those opportunities and then uh, you know you know as nuresh you said that uh, i keep on doing lot of slice and dice of data and some of that i do present in my memo you know but, but there is lot of uh, you know other data which i keep on evaluating uh, in terms of you know what is sort of so completely out of favor kind of asset class or uh, within the equities which sectors and small cap at that time had presented you know the valuation gap and as well as the fii dii because in addition to the long term capital gains there was also that sebi reclassification of mutual fund because of which fund managers had to forcefully exit and i had seen myself that if ever i have to buy 1% of a company within a matter of say few days the impact cost was at least 15 to 20% you know so that's how uh, illiquid indian markets are even now i mean if i have to buy 1% of a company uh, in a matter of 3 4 days the impact cost can be sometimes as high as 30% or 40% right so you can imagine that if you are forced to exit out of these mutual funds from so many of these companies it is natural that those stocks and while selling the impact cost sometimes is even higher because there is no one in front to buy right and hence i thought that that was a factor in almost all the small cap companies because all the mutual funds had to forcefully get out and i thought that was you know one of the best times to come into the market hence we said you know this is the time to come into the market during my launch call i had told that i had never told my in-laws to invest into the stock market because you know stock market is so uncertain and they were net never experienced i even told them in 2019 that whatever money excess money you have just invest in this so that was the first time ever they invested into the stock market you know and but even when we launched i mean there was not much of a response uh, from the investor because the times were so bad that uh, it took lot of guts to come into the small cap space then it was like so beaten down and you know uh but that's the time you know you got to come into the market and hopefully that is what we will keep on doing that when we launch a certain thing it is so out of favor that for most investors at least the experience will be good and with you know consistently doing that they will at least you know realize okay whenever we come out with something it is better than average time to come into that uh, sort of uh, class Stoic Talks has been partnered by DSP Mutual Fund which was an obvious choice for us having interacted with the DSP team earlier and recognizing how they are obsessed with helping investors take better decisions some examples of their motivation to help investors do better are visible in their research related work which they make available for free including getting smarter tatya report card their invest for good blog among others and many more reports we thank team DSP for supporting this episode of Stoic Talks and recommend that you follow them on twitter their handle is @dspmf samit uh, you know 
so we are going uh, into now the portfolio side of things. Before that, I want to finish what we started on the selection part. We did cover sustainability. We did cover growth oriented. Uh, can you also comment on what do you mean by accountable and efficient and how do you measure those parameters when it comes to the companies you're buying? Right. See, accountable is uh, more of the management uh, quality. You know, it's whatever they say, whatever they have committed, you know, they deliver on that. Right. So uh, that is what we look for. It's about, it's all about the management uh, quality, accountability of the management uh, in terms of execution. And efficiency is more about, you know, capital allocation, because it's all about when you're looking for growth kind of companies, which we look for, you know, you have to be very, very efficient in some in terms of capital allocation, because the reinvestment is continuous. You know, when you're growing at 18 to 26%, most companies ROE is going to be in that 20, 25% range. So almost all of the capital you need to reinvest into the business, you know, to keep on growing at that rate. So you need to be very, very inefficient. So it's all about, and then that is one of the uh, biggest factor we we try to evaluate that the future investments that they do, you know, the incremental return on investment has to be higher than their existing return on investment because you don't need to go down the value curve just for growth's sake. You don't want to invest in poor quality sort of uh, opportunities, you know. So that's very important, and that's the only way you can without having to leverage you'll be able to keep on sustaining your uh, uh, growth rate because if you leverage, it actually doesn't remain sustainable. At a certain point, you'll have to you know, completely stop. That, that actually brings me to two questions uh, when it comes to capital allocation. So one, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but my assessment then becomes that uh, the first criteria is going to be past good asset allocation when you are selecting a company. So you're not going to go into the stories of where the turnaround will happen or where the efficiency will come in, but the management has no record whatsoever of doing it in past. So I'm guessing that you will let go of those kind of opportunities. So hence, looking at past capital allocation is an important criteria for you, which you can judge using return ratios or something. Is that a fair understanding? Okay. There is no other proof, right? And secondly, so then the question becomes more of incremental capital and the, the, the scalability, whether it is there or not, for them to deploy that capital, but you're not going to make an assessment call on uh, uh, new capital making more returns than what they have done in past. That is the first first assessment. Right, that shows that the capital allocation decisions are good. Otherwise, I mean, there are always opportunities. If you want to just uh, uh, make you know, 12, 13% return on investment, there are millions of opportunities. But you need to focus on the ones where at least it will have 20% plus. The second thing which you said uh, is that just by, just when the capital allocation is not there, you don't want to go down the curve to chase growth, down the, down the quality curve, so to speak. Uh, do you make those kind of decisions at the valuation side also? So I wanted to, when we were discussing valuation, I wanted to ask you this, that you said valuations are crucial for the next few years of returns especially when the when they are on the higher side because there is a possibility of derating uh, in the scenario when you find your companies to be in that zone do you make a shift out of those companies primarily because now they have gone into the zone where it's pretty much given that derating isn't going to be the future rather than re-rating do you make those decisions yes yes so on your first question of uh, you know not going down the curve 
for uh, valuation i mean see there is just because there is growth doesn't mean your valuation will increase right if investor expect their return on equity from the company or return on investment from the company say at a 18% level and the company invests in opportunities where the return on investment is going to be 12% actually you are destroying value your p multiple as well as your total market value actually will come down you know so that is something which is very very important that they need to invest where their p multiple as well as market valuation should you know go up in terms of d rating see after all it's all about making returns right so for example if i have a company which is trading at a p multiple of 10 times which i think you know for that kind of quality of company it's uh, it's uh, multiple seems really low right and say 3 years down the line it earnings uh, say goes up by 20% right and the p multiple say also goes up by uh, 20% right so overall maybe you will make 40% return during those 3 uh, years right whereas you another company where the p multiple is say at 40 times you know where uh, you know that okay it is maybe above its sort of fair valuation but in the next 3 years it is say going to double its uh, its uh, earnings right so even if the p multiple say comes down prime from 40 times maybe by you know 10 15% you know my uh, returns from 100% will come down maybe to 80% or 85% right so still i am going to make more money so that's a call you need to make that what is your starting multiple what is the ending multiple in between what is going to happen to the earnings you know so sometimes uh, a re-rate, derating also is reasonable enough for you to invest but let's you know take that same example which you did slightly further and say that okay the p multiple now is in a uncomfortable zone right it's not 40 let's say it's 80 uh at that point in time so my question here is more towards do you make exit calls or even even allocation adjustments based on valuations if the valuation goes really really berserk yes yes see i because i have done professional valuation i think one thing is very clear to me that fair value is not one number fair valuation is valuation is a pretty large range so a fair valuation can be from 20 times multiple to even 40 times multiple but beyond 40 times a 45 50 times you know that it's an extraordinarily expensive valuation below 20 times it's really really cheap right so whenever the valuation is beyond say extraordinary those times if we are invested we'll get out if we are not invested we'll not invest so but we are pretty flexible in terms of that fair value range you know so there i am okay because we i don't know whether 20 times is the right multiple for it or 40 times is the right multiple but at 45 times i know it is not the right multiple for it um okay just i'll just move into so we are now moving more towards the allocation of the portfolio side also but on the point which you just mentioned let me ask you a follow up question so let's say you are in that zone where you take that exit decision right because the valuation has gone into a very uncomfortable zone uh, by the very act of selling you will have cash available to you and cash brings in the you know the the mental liability of deploy redeployment so to speak generally those kind of market environments come when overall markets are also pretty overheated and if you want to find value or you know you have to go down the quality curve so is there a decision of how much cash you want to be in 
let's say you are in a very overheated market how do you how do you manage this aspect of allocation yeah yeah no i think that's a very important aspect because what happens is that whenever you have cash a fund manager you know natural tendency is to, like there is too much urge to just deploy that somewhere you know because you think that you may lose out on the opportunity so there is a huge opportunity cost but you know that's the see as a long term sort of investor if you want to take the right decisions you know for long term returns you have to set certain rules for exiting you know and if at that point if there is not better opportunity to to enter then better you stay out of the market i mean that's the only strategy which will make you have higher cash when there is complete froth in the market you know so we are completely fine going even up to 35 40% cash if we are exiting and if we don't find opportunities we can wait and watch you know so uh, and i think you know it's very very difficult to do that but as a prudent strategy you know i think for the investors uh, that will give them a lot of confidence uh, especially markets have become so, the cycles have shrunk so short the volatility has also increased that these kind of corrections happen more often uh, these days so you know as a long term fund manager you don't have to think that you need to be completely invested all the 10 years you know because i have gone through phases where there are periods when you make no money for long period of time 3 4 years right and at that time uh the opportunity sometimes you get are so attractive that even if you have 15 20% cash you know that cash can be as equivalent of having 40% cash because the valuations that you get are probably at 50 or 60 70% discount during that time so that cash is hugely valuable uh okay but let me also bring in an argument which 100% cash people bring on table majority of the time see i am a I, I like to go in cash myself, so uh, this argument is not mine. But what I have heard often uh, is that see, history has taught us that the overvaluation zone goes to crazy overvaluation zones uh, in the absolute euphoric market. So imagine yourself sitting in 2006 uh, kind of an environment. Companies were overvalued, and then they became crazy valued, right? So when uh, when your yardstick to exit is based on valuation. you can take yourself out of the game and you know go in those 35% 40% kind of cash much much before the market peaks out and that impacts your relative return tremendously i mean relative performance so to speak uh are you saying that that decision will make back those 40 lost opportunities in the flip side and the cheap markets or is that a decision which worries you or you know how do you deal with this argument of 100% cash right right see i think lot of the argument of 100% cash is by large fund managers where you know they get a lot of institutional uh, money where there is a lot of yes uh, yes lot of <laughs> right so 100% equity decisions i think is uh, i mean it's see many fund managers just focus on the outperformance to the market right so they are completely that's their uh, sort of mandate that they need to outperform the market so whether it's going up or down it doesn't matter to them the absolute returns are not important it's the relative returns uh, you know which are important because it's all about the asset allocation that their clients have done at their end 
right so that is also fair uh, it also depends on the investor what is its mandate you know is it absolute return in the long run or is it a relative return in the in the long run so for someone like us or you know you if you are focusing on absolute return you are right i think there could be periods where there is a huge bull market like what happened in 2000 say 3 to 2008 period but it happens you know once in i don't know how many years you know not even in 10 years right so but because of that sort of experience you keep on taking decisions based on that one event right i don't know whether it's the right decision it may not happen right but if you are patient enough after 2008 you know the market the small cap mid cap index went down by what 74 75% right so it probably gave up the last two or three years of gains you know because to go back to that level you have to go back for 4x now you know so if you are patient enough and uh, if you are sitting on cash even those huge uh, bull runs actually rationally makes sense you know and uh, in normal markets uh, i think the these days you know the corrections happen uh, very often and that 20 30% kind of a correction is is uh, is uh, so often these days that i think i'm see you don't have to go back into 35 40% cash at the, at every point in time you know those are the situation when they are really super normally expensive you know and uh, here even if it's 15% or 20% kind of a cash you are not you still are invested 80 85% right but that 15 20% cash when you get the opportunity sometimes to buy at 40 50% discount it's extremely valuable it makes up more than having just invested 100% because you don't in a down market it's very difficult to exit especially as for a small and mid cap fund manager it is almost impossible to exit and create cash during a down cycle it can only be done when th- times are are good so and it's i think 15 20% cash is reasonable uh, enough with not too much of an opportunity cost so when was the last time you took a big cash call in the pms or personally pms uh, uh, so i mean my personal and pms is exactly replication so last cash call that we had taken was during covid times and i had also written a note to my clients during that time why we had taken a cash call but that was more of a macro cash call that you know whenever the there are too many unknown unknowns which was the case then you know covid was such an unknown event and the implication of covid were even more unknown how the governments will will react to it you know and with that what kind of impact it will have on the economy and corporate india that was so much unknown that for me it didn't make sense to be 100% invested at that time so and the time that you got to exit was like very short i thought okay let's slowly take uh, you know cash call and we got into like 15 17% cash our goal was to probably raise 20 25% cash during that time but the next monday it opened like 10% down now what do we do you know you you can't do but still we were about 17 80% cash and if it was a slow sort of down then we would have been more in cash but what we thought will happen over the next 3 4 months you know happen in the next 2 weeks you know on like after that 23rd you know even india announced a full lockdown and by that time markets were down 30% and we said now least covid risk even if it's not known exactly but lot of it is priced into the market 
and then uh, the actions taken by the government were also pretty known you know they are just going for a huge lockdown and then they will shut it down for you know two or three weeks and then open it up so there we had gotten some sense of you know what it is going to evolve into and then the market should down 30 35% so we thought that let's reinvest now and within the next 10 days we had reinvested all the capital that we had uh, samit uh, we have discussed valuation based selling you sell when you find overvaluation in your companies what are the other reasons when you get out of your positions both you know from the from the uh, from the business side and i mean when you are making money or when you're losing money. So how do you evaluate those situations from the selling perspective? See, for us, because we have a clear goal that we need to invest in companies where the earnings will double in the next three to four years. After every quarter, we do evaluate, you know, whether that's still possible going forward because all it's all about looking forward. Just because since investment, you know, we have, uh, say, uh, the earnings have gone up by 50%, now we only are left with 50. That doesn't make sense because by that time, even the prices would have reacted. And so it's all about looking forward next three to four years. Can they still double their earnings? At any point, we think that's like a remote possibility, we exit. So most common exits for us is because fundamentally the company is not meeting what we are looking for. Valuation sometimes, as I said, you know, we have a pretty uh, patient sort of range of fair valuation. Whenever they cross that range, and now we think that there is a huge possibility that, you know, the earnings are only going to double in four years, and then the multiple are most going likely going to derate, you know, then that's also a reason that we would. So even if, say, the earnings maybe are meeting at the lower end of our uh, criteria, uh, but the valuations are so expensive, then highly likely that the valuations can, you know, fall correct by 20, 30, or even 50 percent. That also a reason for us to exit. And then other common reasons like, you know, some events, whether regulatory reason or go, uh, the management taking the wrong capital allocation decision or some corporate governance issue that also you immediately, there's no, not much uh, patience that we have with that. And, and what is your wait period? So let's say you entered into the thesis, the growth is showing up, but the price is down and, you know, it, the market is just not recognizing it and it can happen for years and years sometimes, you know, market can go into that phase of not giving value to the company. So do you have a wait period after which you say, okay, market is right, we are wrong maybe? Right. No, see, one has to evaluate what is the reason. Sometimes what happens is that there is a temporary phase because of which you know that, okay, now what happened, say, in the last couple of quarters, that uh, the earnings are taking a hit because the freight costs, a lot of raw material costs have gone up. And uh, it does take uh, take some couple of quarters for the company to pass on the price. Right? So if there is a reason that we understand for the underperformance of earnings, we can wait and you know watch. But sometimes if we realize, okay, this is probably a permanent structural change which has happened. So now sustainability is a big factor which is under risk. Then you know we don't wait too long. Maybe a couple of quarters, two three quarters is the max we would wait and we would exit because. After all, you can't be certain. Has, has there ever been a case where market has not recognized an investment you have invested into multiple of years and you held on to it? Uh, I'm just trying to gauge your you know, holding power in those scenarios. Right. See, my, markets, if the earnings have come through, they have generally, generally recognized. It's mostly like you going wrong in your thesis in terms of fundamental earnings growth is when uh, you know markets generally penalize you they generally actually even 
give you a derated multiple that but i don't remember a circumstance when the earnings have multiplied and then the markets don't care about it so uh, there we go to uh, the places where you've made a mistake uh, in your thesis so maybe you could give us a few examples right i mean see most of the time the thesis has been that the sustainability is the big problem you know where so for examples like indo count where uh, you know we i mean they they are into bed linen and and i visited their uh, warehouses uh, showroom in uh, new york and got really good feedback from the designers from the customers there you know but uh, now they were getting into the larger market of bed topping you know fashion design all of that which was a bigger market for them and uh, there as soon as they got into that and we thought that you know there is a huge growth trigger valuations were also at 13 14 times kind of a multiple but then uh, a quarter results you know we realized i mean we were shocked with the kind of margin pressure they had with the growth pressure they had even after getting into new segment so we started digging further into it you know so then realized that amazon was completely aggressive you know coming into the market you know they were taking away market share from their customers and if the customers are losing market share then you know uh, it puts pressure on the vendor you know or the supplier right? and uh, that's what happened in uh, the case so we did evaluate and realize that this is a much longer term structural destruction and then as soon as margins come under pressure and growth comes under pressure you know generally the p multiple gets uh, derated very quickly and that's what happened so of course we got out uh, with a loss of whatever 35% or so but we took that call within the couple of uh, quarters uh. Uh, so samit uh, we have got most of your selection portfolio management one last question from my side at least is on the allocation front how do you decide your initial allocations to the stock and are you a partial position builder or go you know invest in one go kind of an investor similarly when it is up to selling do you trim down your positions or do you go move out of positions how, can you give us some color on the allocation how do you manage that sure so the allocation decision so see for us that 16 17 stocks is a good balance uh, in terms of number of stocks where we are not too diversified neither are we too concentrated you know because with 16 stocks actually if you do right diversification you take away 95% of the systemic uh, you know risk uh, so that is a good number so with that it means that on an average we need to have an allocation of around 6 to 7% right so our allocation ranges at the lower end 4% and at the higher end 10% at cost right so most often uh, when we build a position you see the ranking has to be based on wherever we have the highest conviction you know with in terms of taking care of the risks and the high returns possible they will tend to be more towards the 10% and the and the other you know way around up to 4% but most often we will start with 4% allocation for most stocks and then as we get more and more uh, sort of convinced we because whatever you do at the initial phases of your investment uh you will have much lesser knowledge than what you will have maybe one year two years down the line you know so with that uh, confidence build up you will slowly keep on building the position sometimes that build up happens in a matter of you know few months like three four months sometimes it may happen over a period of time 
and then even within a longer term so for example uh, companies which we have held on for a very long period of time like sometimes pi industries bajaj finance apl apollo there uh, even within our horizon period we sometimes have had 4% allocation sometimes have had 14% allocation or 15% allocation because with initial allocation of 10% also sometimes the market you know doesn't grow but the stock grows your allocation goes up right so you also do some tactical changes during that time depending on the valuation so valuation also is a determinant factor in terms of you know because if you thought that you know it's an attractive uh, company at a valuation of say 30 times and then the stock say goes up very sharply without earnings going up and the p multiple goes 40 times of course it deserves less allocation so if you thought 10% was the right allocation at 30 times at 40% it doesn't probably you know uh, have a 10% right it will probably have a 7 8% allocation at the right allocation so that also keeps on uh, keeps on changing but we do it uh, slowly during exit most of the time it is uh, at one time uh, you very rarely have we done slow sort of exit it will happen within a matter of month or so Uh, so, uh, so only selling which is partial is where you are trimming your position for the reasons you mentioned uh, otherwise if you decided to move out of the position you will move out of in one go it's not about profit booking partial profit booking or any such thing so understood understood great and you know uh, 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 we unfortunately you know the time is always a constraint but i would have want to have one podcast with you where we only talk spirituality because i heard one of your podcasts where you talk about that and it's a area of interest for mine but i wanted this one to be more investing centric uh, uh in one of them we'll not talk about investing we'll move solely into the spiritual side of things uh but one point i do want to cover is that i have seen that in your life serendipity has pretty much played the role at all the key juncture be it you going to us be it your you know losses and your entry point into the market being 1999 uh be it coming to india and not finding ibd because i'm guessing if ibd was there in india you probably would not have changed your style and 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 serendipity has pretty much played how do you how do you bring that aspect of your life and learnings of serendipity working for you into your investment style if at all you do or you don't try to mix the two and you know just just give us a color on that if possible yeah i mean see what i have learned in life is that uh you know you are going through experiences you know there is no point of me sort of stamping an event whether it's a good event for me or a bad event for me just because i made a lot of money this year doesn't mean it's a good it's may it may not lead into happiness because after my end goal has to be you know happiness right so i of course uh, don't judge an event even if something bad happens to me i don't know what the repercussions of that is going forward right my job is only to you know take action right events will keep on happening i need to believe in the universe saying that that universe is what will take care of the results for me and which are going to be good because i am not a judge of whether an event is good for me i am i am not at that level to know what is happening today is good for me because you know you can have a you know great you will probably you know you propose to someone and you know uh, she accepts a proposal and uh, you know, she becomes your wife but then you can go through a really bad divorce five years down the line so something which you thought was a great event may turn out to be one of the worst decisions of your life so why judge an event you know uh, let life unfold in front of uh, front of you you keep on t- taking decisions based on what you think is right follow your passion 
and let the results come to you and that's how i have done you know whether in terms of changing my job i thought that was the right decision for me starting stage one that was the right decision for me going to the us was obviously i had no option anyway so you know <laughs> i just took the best option which which was available available to me but uh, you just need to keep on decision whether without getting affected you know even if things are happening great i think you know you should not get too excited if things are happening bad you know you know no ever know what is you know going to happen maybe few years down the line so take it as it is if the universe has delivered you something accept it you know with with full heart you know don't create friction by saying that no i wanted this and i wanted that keep the flow clear open uh, to it and generally what is right for you will come to you uh, just to ask one last point on that you know uh, sorry narration just just one small point is that even though you don't judge the events but you do learn from your decisions which you have made in past even though you know the decisions are not made with the best of information people tend to go back and reflect on the decisions they made and they try to you know come up with learnings from those decisions uh that is one exercise which i have always found to be helpful but futile also because we judge the decisions as if we had all the information you know uh, while making those decision which is actually is which actually comes to us much later and then we reflect on those decisions uh so are you saying that that's a that's a futility ex- futile exercise to do i mean do you go back and reflect on your decisions and you say why would i took that decision now right see when you live life you know after all you collect a lot of data memory and based on that you know your decision making can change because through experience you learn what is right and what is wrong decision because you need to take a decision with full intellect and with full uh, you know compassion for others you know if you take the decision and then with in- intellect means that you have to analyze what has happened in the past based on that you need to take a decision and but just because you had taken wrong decision you don't need to repent and you know keep on thinking back see that happened you know now going forward you just need to incorporate that learning and keep the decision but again you may again go wrong that's also fine you keep open you know to to that kind of a possibility and not keep on fearing that you know you know have a have i taken a wrong decision because that's like uh, you know you are living a sort of a tied life you need to live a free life you know with acceptance of what's going to come you know without any kind of a fear sorry nurish you were saying something No, no. So uh, we are coming to an end. So we'll uh, what we do. I'll suggest a segment where we, me and Puneet, ask you random questions, but you have to answer in a line. And uh, so I think I'll let uh, Puneet start with the question and uh, a random question out of nowhere, and you need to give it in a line. We no more explanation, just a conclusion. And, and we haven't planned this, okay? So it's going to be random for us also, okay? So, so. Um... Okay uh the best book you have ever read and you're learning from that Astra Astavakra Gita Learning is uh, the same thing that we spoke about uh so uh, uh you said about earnings growth above sustain uh, above accountability and efficiency or the other way around you're okay to let go accountability for earnings growth is there earnings growth is the main thing but you know there has to be some accountability <laughs> so it's basically earnings growth above accountability okay uh, many times investors leave uh, you know many companies based on very minor forensic issues how serious you are on the forensic part of balance sheets or or financial statements no if you find some fraud in terms of numbers or uh, how they 
represent you know if this wrong data to evaluate that's a complete no no just stay away from it so bap investing or not buy at any price or not no 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 within that reasonable range but that range has to be a little flexible not you know i, I don't need to be that stringent about that one number okay if it's above this i'm not going to buy if you if you weren't an investor what would you have been i would have been uh, probably a monk <laughs> i think nothing else else makes sense to me perfect absolutely pleasure samit it was great talking to you uh, learned a lot i'm going to you know go through the podcast make my notes uh, but it was brilliant talking to you we'll definitely do one more podcast where we'll not talk investing we will only talk spirituality but thank you for giving us your time thank you samit uh, it was great interacting no no it's absolutely my pleasure this audio podcast is for general information purpose only and contains the personal views of the spokespersons do not construe this as an investment advice listeners before acting on any information should make their own investigation and seek appropriate professional investment advice before doing so any sectors stocks or issuers mentioned do not constitute any recommendation and dsp investment managers private limited the amc may or may not have any future positions in these while utmost care has been exercised the spokespersons or the amc do not warrant completeness or accuracy of the information and disclaim any liabilities losses or damages arising out of the use of this information past performance may or may not sustain in the future and should not be used as a basis for comparison with other investments mutual fund investments are subject to market risks read all scheme related documents carefully